We talk a bit about mental health on the show. I shan't recite all the stats again, but a quarter of the population experience mental health, mental distress in New Zealand every year, and rates of anxiety and depression are high. And we all know about how chemicals in the brain have a bearing on all this, including what are called the hope chemicals, the ones that get us out of bad mental places and spaces. Uh, This isn't going to be a conversation about medications, but about what new research reveals concerning exercise. We've spoken with Catherine DeLang before about the importance of blue spaces and green spaces in our lives. Uh, We mentioned that at the time there was this 2016 study in Wellington which found that if you could see the sea from where you lived, for example, you'd experience lower levels of psychological distress on average. Catherine DeLang is a science author specialising in bioscience. She's written the book Brain Power, Everything You Need to Know for a Healthy, Happy Brain. Catherine's also the magazine editor for New Scientist and her work is seen as well on The Observer, The Telegraph, The Journal Nature and the BBC. Catherine, good evening to you at your end of the day. Thanks for coming on with us. We know exercise is good and good for the mind and body, mens sana and corpore sana and all that. But you're across a lot more of the detail around this. Can I first of all ask you how the chin-ups are going? <laughs> well, not as well as I would like. I started my chin-up challenge in January and hoping that I might be able to do just one measly chin-up by the end of the year. But um, I have to say I had some knee surgery um, in May, so that's set me back quite a long way. So. That's my excuse anyway, but I'm still working on it and I'm thinking if I really, really double down, maybe I could get one in by the end of the year. And I'll get back to why you're giving up. I'll get, well done. I'll get back to why you're doing the chin-ups. <laughs> when you were writing Brain Power, what you discovered changed your relationship with exercise forever. In general terms, how, Catherine? It did because I've, I mean, I've, I've exercised pretty regularly since I was in my, I guess, early 20s. Um, but it was, I was always focused on, you know, when I was a bit younger, probably on burning calories and staying in shape, but it also, you know, there's amazing studies showing what exercise can do for mental health. So there's so many things that exercise can do to keep our brains healthy and, and, and firing on all cylinders. So now when I exercise, I really do it for my brain. Yeah. And if you tell yourself that it's going to be an extra incentive to exercise, I'm sure. And it, it, and it's also quite liberating because you don't have to worry about all those other things like how many calories you burn. You can you know you're doing something just really amazing. And it produces chemicals that make it easier for new brain cells to com- to communicate at any age. Catherine, the idea is that when we're children, we we grow a lot of um, brain cells as uh, as babies and children. We have all these connections, and as we get older. Um, we prune those connections rather than growing new ones. Um, but exercise seems to um, to actually help some areas of the brain grow new brain cells. And also, as you say, for the brain to be able to communicate better as we get older, and especially with um, things like Alzheimer's disease, the kind of lack of um, new brain cells and the communication between brain cells deteriorates. So if exercise can counter that, then that's that's really, really exciting. And we know how getting out and about and using our bodies boosts our mood. To what extent, though, is it a tonic for the next level mental ailments like depression? With depression, we can see the more exercise people do, the less likely they are to experience depression. 
Um, one study found that even you know doing thirty minutes of exercise every day slashed um, the risk of depression by nearly half. And in particular, group sports and activities seem to be to be really good for um, these kind of mood disorders and strength training as well. So that's why you know I really focused on the chin ups and kind of building up my strength because strength training has been shown to reduce levels of anxiety to reduce symptoms of depression and to boost self-esteem so it really is a big effect can you explain what was found out of oxford university when researchers looked at a very big database i think this was a a really big study 1.2 million um people so they found that people who did exercise um experienced 43% fewer days of poor mental health in the past month. Um, So, you know, and that was regardless of people's age, their gender, their race or their income. So it really seems to be kind of a widespread effect. You can go for a walk, even light exercise and moderate exercise seems to have an effect. And if you can do those things outside, if you can do those things with other people, do some um, group activities or team sports, that's really going to make a big difference for mental health. Catherine DeLang is with us, the magazine editor for New Scientist and the author of Brain Power, Everything You Need to Know for a Healthy, Happy Brain. And for everyone who has just poor mental health days, which is everyone, uh, whether diagnosed or not, whether severe or, or just glum, Catherine, what exercise shows the most benefit? Um, the idea that our muscles, when we do exercise, they're not kind of just these work horses that do the exercise when we exercise our skeletal muscles produce all of these chemicals um that communicate with the rest of the body and communicate with the brain and um these are called myokines and they've been nicknamed the hope chemicals because they have such a big influence on our mood um, and on our behaviors and again so the thing that seems to have the most influence on these myokines and produce more of these so-called hope chemicals is against strength training um and you know this could could help explain why we've seen things like you know women with alzheimer's who do strength training exercises and um, perform better on memory tests um there's other studies that show that um people who do strength training um and are over 65 have better just kind of cognitive skills and memory and it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to be lifting weights in the gym. You don't have to be doing chin-ups. But there's, you know, the, I was talking to this brilliant researcher and she does um, studies with people who have Alzheimer's disease and who have dementia. And they just use resistance bands. They can do the exercises sitting down. So we're not talking about some kind of extreme exercise for gym. I was looking at a few ideas for it. I mean, the, the, the obvious is squeeze a tennis ball. But I... Re- I read rotating a wine bottle up and down will help. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which may may appeal to some people for very... Whilst drinking really, or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, presumably not, not whilst drinking. Um, some of this research, Catherine, seems to echo what was highlighted when the book Blue Zones first came out looking at pockets of centenarians around the world. And I know some of the conclusions of that book have been debated. But one takeaway was the benefit of just moving, you know, vacuuming, pottering, gardening, and so on. Well, they say what's good for the 
heart is good for the brain. So the brain is a really hungry organ. It uses a lot of energy. Uh, we need to be constantly supplying it with lots of oxygen. So if you have got the blood moving and pumping around the body, it's going to reach the brain, it's going to feed the brain. So to a certain extent, there's going to be a benefit to doing more intensive physio exercise, things that are going to get your, your pulse racing. Um, and we know that also that's good for blood pressure and blood pressure, high blood pressure is associated with, um, you know, a decrease in cognitive performance, increased dementia. So all these things that are good for the heart are good for the brain. But putting that aside, a lot of the other research has shown that, you know, just doing that kind of getting up, being active, doing the gardening, doing the hoovering, all of that stuff does give you some of those mood boosts. Another study in teenagers found that just eight to 20 minutes um, had, a, had a big effect. So we're not talking about running a marathon or kind of becoming a, a bodybuilder. These are small, small amounts of exercise that if you can plan them into your day, really have a big effect. A lot of factors militate against, you know, success in life, especially in early life, which is what you've been talking about. But I was reading that exercise confers benefits comparable with, and I think often bigger than, your level of education and how much money you have to come and go on. I don't want this to sound, you know, too blithe, but in fact, you know, your circumstances may seem to you to improve the more you get out and move that body. It's true when you look at the data, you know, it can really, it can balance out a lot of the um a lot of the health effects from um, other disparities in society. We've heard about shorter, high-intensity bursts of exercise being more important than hitherto. For example, a recent study I saw uh, was extolling the benefits of four and a half minutes that leave you huffing and puffing. Mm. And I know that 150 minutes a week accords with the WHO guidelines, etc. And I also know for that for some people that seems, even if they can get out and exercise, that seems a big amount of time, a deterringly big amount of time, I imagine. I'm always a bit wary of that one because it's such a, you know, doing things in short bursts sounds so tempting, but actually you really, really have to push yourself. Whereas if you can incorporate that exercise in, into your day and do it in ways that you really enjoy, it might take a bit longer, but I, I think it's going to, in the long run, it's probably going to, for most people, it's going to um, to be easier. And ultimately, you need to find something that you enjoy if you're going to keep doing it because, you know, lab studies have found, unsurprisingly, that if you make somebody do a horrible, grueling workout in a in a lab, you know, under sort of artificial lighting with loads of scientists watching, they don't enjoy it and it doesn't improve their mood. Um, so, you know, ultimately, you do have to find things that, that, that you enjoy. A few more things. Catherine DeLang is with us on exercise. Uh, research often looks at snapshots in time, which can seem odd. I remember reading the famous Harvard study of men in the old days, which found the benefits of playing team sport at age nine seemed to last through life and contribute to happiness and achievement and so on. And I suppose it could have been age 10, age 12. But you cite a Swedish study looking at low fitness in 18-year-olds and what that may presage for their later lives. Yes. This was a study looking at male um, teenagers in Sweden who were um, who joined the army when they were 18 and then they were followed up for decades later. 
Um, so their fitness was obviously assessed as part of that kind of entry to the army. And the ones who had lower fitness at age 18 um, had a, an increased risk of serious depression um, when they grew up, uh, so as adults. And also um, they had an increased risk of um, or an increased tendency of um, early onset dementia. So we can take these snapshots and see that um, that they can have long-lasting effects. I suppose we have to think about them um, in terms of, you know, wh- why is that? You have to be careful when, when when you see a study that seems to kind of oversimplify things. But um, at the same time, I think that study is quite compelling because these people were followed up for so long and it was quite a big group of people. Um, so we can say that, you know, there's an association and we can't necessarily say why that happened. You know, basically we're being told to do exercise for half an hour a day of some sort, essentially. But the team, the Swedish team in that study suggested a more modest benefit uh, in terms of time, periods of 8 to 20 minutes, three times a week. And that's not an ordeal, is it? And that's according with what you were mentioning earlier, that you know, even smaller amounts of exercise produce benefit. Yeah, so that study was in teenagers um, who did, um, you had, they had exercise breaks from their studies that lasted between eight and 20, three times a week for six months. That was regular, but it was short and it improved their fitness. Obviously, you would expect that, but it also improved their focus in class. And for those who had poor mental health, it also reduced um, their perception of stress and it lowered their feelings of sadness and anxiety. So, you know, I just think it's so important for children and for for teenagers. I mean, we know how much um, stress teenagers are under. We know how many mental health problems there are in teenagers. So, you know, something as simple as just taking a break from your studies and doing just 10 minutes up to 20 minutes of, of exercise um, a few times a week, it just it seems like a no-brainer, really. Memory improves just 24 hours after a single session using resistance bands and the results are even better after several weeks. And you think, wow. And I know there are suggestions that results of these individual studies are overhyped sometimes, but that is still evidence of benefit, isn't it? That was a a reputable kind of finding. The last thing I want to ask you is to do with choosing exercise that's cognitively stimulating Adults who engaged in, I'm quoting of course, adults who engaged in cognitively demanding exercises performed better later on in tests of memory compared with those who took yoga classes. So what are we talking about? Just walking to new places when you go out, uh, not just to the beach and back, but exploring the rock pools. What are we talking about in terms of cognitive challenge? I think it's quite early days for this idea, but it's a really fascinating kind of concept that, um, so it's taking an evolutionary biology approach to all of this and saying, well, when we first started walking on two legs and we started to be able to kind of hunt our food over longer distances, we started, you know, walking for, for, for hunt, hunting and gathering and, um, at the same time, we would have needed to navigate the need to be really thinking very hard whilst exercising that some people think might have actually been what drove 
um, the development of our larger, smarter brains that kind of are the hallmark of our, us as a species. So if that's true, and if, you know, exercising whilst also thinking about things, basically, um, is what made us smart, then it would make sense that when we, if we want to, to um, use exercise to become smarter or to protect our brain, then we should be doing something cognitive at the same time. Maybe kind of listening to a an interesting podcast where you go for a run or, as you say, learning. Maybe I should be counting my reps in Spanish. <laughs> I'm actually learning Japanese. I'll do it in Japanese. <laughs> yeah, that'll be more cognitively demanding. Always very nice to talk with you, Catherine. Thanks so much for the time you gave us uh, this morning as well. A pleasure. Catherine DeLang. On Sunday morning, two minutes to 10 o'clock. But how much wasabi? Someone has texted. Uh, this refers to our chat with Ali Hill last hour about wasabi benefiting the brain, possibly. And I, I wondered the same thing when I read the study because they gave people their own wasabi package, I think, in pill form. So it may pay to Google that and it won't be difficult. Still on the way on Sunday morning, the disappearing art of handwriting. But vanishing with it may be other cognitive advantages it bestows on us. And the author of I Am Pilgrim is finally following that book up. The Year of the Locust is the new one from Terry Hayes.